philosophers in space, 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 space. On a scale of one to ten, how would you rate your pain? Physical or emotional? Are we sure we should be paying attention to these guys? It's like who died and left Aristotle in charge of ethics? Plato! Sure, we all feel alive now, but how do we know it's not all, you know, just an illusion? Nobody exists on purpose. Nobody belongs anywhere. Everybody's gonna die. Come watch TV. Hello and welcome to Philosophers in Space. This is episode 31, and you guys just heard the new intro. Uh, and that... that Put your leg up on us because we haven't heard it. Uh, th- that's kind of a weird time travel well, thing th- we're doing. I I have a nonlinear perception of time, Thomas. So ah. I actually have heard it, Ooh. and I think it's really good because I live Ooh. in a deterministic universe. What a brilliant segue and tie-in! Because the last time we spoke philosophy of language, it was, it was about arrival. I don't even know if you did that intentionally, Noah, but either way, it was brilliant because that's when we last <laughs> debated this nonlinear <laughs> perception of time. Uh, and that involved the philosophy of language as well. And uh, we're going to do that today with Snow Crash and talk about the language aspects. But I should introduce everybody. How's it going, Aaron? Oh, it's great. It was a great idea for us to read a 300-page book right at the start of the semester. I feel great. Everything's great. I'm, uh, I'm glad we did this thing, and now I can go and do other things. <laughs> All right. That sounds totally non-passive aggressive and, and gen- genuinely happy. And no it's illusions. only passive aggressive at myself because I did it to myself. <laughs> And no illusions. Well, we can blame Noah. Hashtag blame Noah. That's who made Ooh, us do this. Hashtag blame Noah. I like that. For everything. Yeah. <laughs> How's it going, Noah? It's, it was going good until you uh, gave Eli that fucking idea. So, uh, <laughs> sorry. I think I don't think I cost in the entire first episode, so I wanted to open no, it up you early. No, d- you did. I, I took note because the first part before we After Dark is usually clean, and then we do After Dark with cursing. So, either way, we will bleep it for you. But uh, hold your curses until the After Dark segment. Um, but we are going to continue the exposition zone of Snow Crash and talk more about the actual plot rather than merely uh, world building, which involves language and viruses and language viruses and mindy languagey, uh, <laughs> real bloody virus. Everything's basically everything is and isn't a virus and is and isn't language. It's great. We'll get to it. Uh, and then I think for After Dark, we've got oh, what, what, so much to choose from racism. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. Something good. Uh, But with that said, let's hop on over to the exposition zone. You're traveling through another dimension beyond that which is known to podcasters. It is the middle ground between fair use and copyright infringement, between ordinary fanboying and meaningful analysis. It is the exposition zone. Noah, do you want to start us off now in, in kind of getting into the main thrust of the plot here? Yeah, I would imagine huge fans of the book were probably disappointed that we spent so little time uh, on our discussion of Snow Crash talking about Snow Crash itself, (laughs) Um, which is described in the book, I I think at one point, uh, Juanita, who is the ex-girlfriend of hero protagonists, uh, is, is telling him about it, and he's like, you know, is it a, what is this, a, a religion? Is it a, a virus? Is it a computer program? And she's like, what's the difference, right? Yeah. Um. So the idea is that there's this drug, uh, for, for lack of a more specific term, called Snow Crash, that if you see it in the metaverse, 
it will cause your avatar to break down, but it would also will also cause your mind to break down in the real world. Um, now, the entire book uh, is about their effort to discover what this is, what are the secrets behind it. Uh, it I, I assume I'm safe going into spoiler territory well, here. Yeah, we're going to definitely, I think it has to be spoilers, but I want to, I want to clarify something again. It was a long book. Uh, remind me. Uh, <laughs> it seems like, so that's only for programmers, right? Yes, so the theory yes. is if you're a programmer, you've been attuned to the language of ones and zeros a binary. And so therefore seeing this thing in the, in the metaverse can actually tell your brain, you know, get, like transfer this virus to your brain and uh, cause you a snow crash. But I, th it's also just a recreational drug, right? Cause aren't they trying to find samples of it? Am I crazy? What was that? I don't think is there was it, anything it, recreational about it. No, I think that, uh, oh, okay. well, I think it was either has no effect on you or drives you completely insane, right? No, no, because you have the people in the church who are taking it and who are in like the zombie <gasps> oh. kind of state. So it's other purpose for people who are not hackers is that it makes you 100% pliable to the language magic mm -hmm. of this world. Yeah, so okay, the, the yeah. conceit here linguistically is that it goes back into Sumerian mythology and the idea is that there was that the Sumerian language was sort of the proto-language of the human brain, sort of the bios of the human brain. Um, right. And because humans spoke that language, the Sumerian gods could make them do whatever they want. Uh, now, Enki, who is the, uh, the, the only Sumerian god that seems to actually like human beings, he's the god of water, he's the one who created life. Um, so in order to, to sort of um, uh, castrate that power... Uh, from the Sumerian gods, created all the different human languages so that they would have more symbolic languages. Uh, right. And so that they wouldn't understand this original language. But, it, according, you know, in the story, that language is still deep-rooted within our brains, and because computer programmers strip language down to zeros and ones, they get to a point where they actually are once again susceptible to that language. So by showing them what would look like static to us, they can actually send these messages in sort of that proto-Sumerian language, and that you can you can use that to then drive them crazy or put them in a state of ecstasy or make them walk off a cliff, whatever you want them to do, right? Yeah, it's really interesting, and it, it uh, it's, it's cool sci-fi because it does this kind of recasting, I guess, history and mythology with a new meaning. So, like, Babel mm -hmm. refers to a real event which was this Sumerian god is almost, I guess, what, protecting humans by yes. making them all, rather than Babel being this punishment that caused us to stop building a, a you know, a tower to heaven or whatever it was. It, it's, uh, it's in, instead it was a way of protecting us and allowing us to not be susceptible to that. And if you think about it, like based on what we talked about in the in the first episode, um, this work uh, works its way back into this concept of unity, of social unity, and the dangers of too much social cohesion, the, the, the dangers of, you know, the rafts being lashed too tightly together, right? Hmm. Yeah, I love that it's it's tying together like the informational level with the biological and the social because it's also about protection against viruses. Another way to understand the reoccurring theme of this is the same way that we think that like biodiversity, and I think they, they point this out directly at one point, right? Uh, a field of corn is much more vulnerable to a virus than a savanna that has a bunch of different kinds of plants in it. And so cultural unity presents the same kind of problem of lack of protection against um, 
malignant ideas, basically. Well said. Yeah, and uh, I think that I love this premise and and the idea of it. I do think that the programmery part was a little bit, perhaps not. I don't know, not <laughs> maybe yeah, the least it, plausible. It, that's part. the biggest stretch you've got to take. Yeah, in the story. yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk yeah. about why that's sort of a stretchy version of a philosophical position. I think. Oh. Interesting. Um, yeah, because it sort of ties in with what we talked about in Arrival about like the stretchiness of the idea that you could reprogram your brain into a nonlinear fashion. Mm. Um, so yeah, so we have this virus, right? And how does like you want to like describe how this leads to the sort of climaxy anticlimax of this book? <laughs> um, I think I'll leave that to one of you guys because I don't know how deep you tend to go into spoiler territory. So uh... oh, oh, we we go we go as deep as Raven does. Into spoiler <laughs> territory. Um, Make sure to listen to last week's uh, After Dark. That's that a patron-only joke. Or maybe you, maybe you shouldn't have. Maybe you shouldn't have. Uh, yeah, no, uh, I mean, so, like, I, I think we should explain how Hero's journey is, the hero-hero journey in this is about trying to protect everyone from another person coming along and hacking everyone's brains, basically. Right, right. So you've got uh, Rife, the Bob Rife, the the villain in the story who owns the raft. Um, he is a avid collector of Sumerian artifacts, and the reason is because he's trying to uncover this original language that'll allow him to basically turn the human race into zombies. Now he recognizes that his biggest uh, obstacle along the way are these programmers that could actually decipher this language and understand what he's doing. So he's got to get all of these super hackers out of the way first, right? We first right. encounter Snow Crash when the hacker that Hero most admires is exposed to it. Raven shows up in the metaverse, shows him this scroll full of static, and he loses his mind, right? And the, the same character, Raven, tries to uh, get hero to look at the same thing so the idea basically is that he wants to the, the first step of his you know plot to brainwash all of humanity is to take out all of these programmers by bringing them all together and showing them all this scroll with the uh with the, this message to to go crazy uh printed on it in in that proto yeah. language. another place where i think it gets a little fast and loose is in the antivirus stuff again this is this is pretty advanced. I mean, for 1992, like how much computer virusy stuff would there have even been? You know, like without the major, I guess a little bit. But anyway, um, also, Hero is able to develop like a, a, an antivirus kind of thing mm -hmm. through, which which that mm -hmm. strikes me as implausible because if the whole premise is that it's based on this internal language that's a part of every human because of the way we were created in this mythological thing. I don't know what what would that defense be? Would it, it would be a way to change your brain somehow? But how would vi software? I don't know. That seemed a little unclear to me, unless I'm missing something. Well, as I recall, that his antivirus program basically was just to rewrite the program that showed you the scroll, so that oh, all it showed right. you was a thing saying like, "Hey, bump up your antivirus software." You're, you're almost totally just lost right. Your brain, I'm right? sorry. You're totally right. Yeah. So he what he does. That's a good point. Okay. So he changes the scripting in the metaverse so that wherever Snow Crash shows up in the metaverse, the software will protect you from that. Okay, I see. He's yeah, not he rewriting it, the brain. Gotcha. Thank you. I, I knew it was a long book. <laughs> 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 oh. 
Um, and I think this is a wonderful sort of allegory for the relationship between techno society and religion or orthodoxy. This idea that like one of the key stages of any attempt by a an ideology to take over a group involves the killing off of the intellectual technocrats of that group because they're the ones that could undermine your your magic with their magic. Mm-hmm. Another interesting thing that is is so quick, but also I I don't know that it was necessary was this idea that somebody got this virus from outer space. Like the idea was mm-hmm. anywhere that life is. So I guess if we're going with the premise that these Sumerian gods were actually the real thing, like that's really what created life in the universe. Then anywhere there was life, there would be this virus. And so that's, isn't that how Elbob was able to get mm-hmm. the virus? Was he had all these like satellites that were looking for broadcasts that would find it? It's kind of interesting. I don't really get it, but I think that's another one of those examples where it's trying to say that the biological level and the, idea level are actually the same because mm. one major theory for how life exists here is that it came from another planet and i think the point here is to say wherever there is life and however life spreads these ideas spread with them because they they share a, a symbiotic nature and i honestly think and I, again it's been a while since i've uh, i've read the book i honestly think that was largely interject or, or added into the book um, to tie that viral concept that undergirds the entire story to life itself, right? That life itself mm. is a viral uh, form. Mm. Right, right. And everything, all versions of life we see in this world take the form of some kind of virus spreading into the niches, whether it's the burclaves or, you know, the pieces of the raft. It's all, you know, if you if you mapped everything that happens in this book, it would have the same look of those bacteria stop motion things where they show the bacteria spreading into a new environment and then like running up against a barrier and finding the ways through and spreading out again. Like that's what I was kept visualizing when I was reading this book. So let me see if I have this all straight. So snow crash was a thing, a little, essentially a weapon designed by the bad guy to kill the top programmers using this language that he knew could get to these programmers but then there's also the people there's mm-hmm. also the people he's controlling in like a mind control way how are the, how is that so even though they're not programmer but he, so how does that work so he's able to get to mm-hmm. oh that's because that's in the real world so in yeah. he can get to the hackers in the metaverse using snow crash but he's controlling real people in real life by using this secret language that you know still corresponds to some base structure in our brain is that right the, the way i read it is that snow crash makes you highly susceptible to the er language the babble speak that they all these people are speaking and that the babble speak is what carries with it these things called me's that are essentially memes they're they're programming people to behave along a certain pattern and they replicate via um watching other individuals so I think the idea is if you are of the hacker class, this thing crashes your system. And if you are of the non-hacker class, it short circuits the defense mechanisms that the language, the Babel world created when we all had diverse languages and makes you susceptible to that er language. That's that's how I read it, that it's like it it kills your defense mechanisms. 
And then it was interesting, too, because Juanita, who I think I want to talk about a little bit in the after dark now that I think about it, because that is interesting, mm. probably most powerful feminist character who's barely featured in the movie. Yeah, book. right. right. Uh, not, not yet featured in this movie. Yeah, no. exactly. <laughs> Uh, she had, there, there's what she ends up doing is seeking out the bad guy, but she's not susceptible to the mind control because she had left religion and become an atheist and then come back to religion. Did, did you, what did you have to anybody, any observations on that? I thought it was interesting. It wasn't coming from the point of view that like, if you're an atheist, you're immune. It was more like because she hadn't learned because she had come to religion not by rote, you know, not by this kind of may or meme or may or however you'd pronounce it, that sort of thing. She came to it on her own. It left her, you know, not vulnerable to this mind control. Is that is that how you read it? No, I imagine you probably hear this argument sometimes, right? That, like, we should teach... I mean, this sort of shows up in the book, right? If you teach people Christianity and Judaism and, and the books of... The the religions of the books, it protects them from this kind of myth. And I think I've heard Christians say, you know, I was raised Christian and my mother thought that it was good because it would protect me from slipping into a cult. Hmm. Um. Yeah, I mean, I really... I honestly... Uh, that's something that apparently didn't stick with me. Um, hmm. You know, in the book, I, I I can't really opine on that. I don't really recall that aspect of the book. Yeah, the idea is sort of like they explain this distribution of languages and the rise of the various monotheistic religions as part of this large scale defense mechanism to uh, make the people both psychologically and culturally immune to this disease that is so virulent because it taps into our universal sense of language. Yeah, and I guess there is a, an aspect uh, of that that just really ties into the whole, like you were saying earlier about, um, you know, the cultural equivalent to a field of corn, right? That anything that is divisive of, or that divides um, culture would thereby make us as a species more immune to this disease, right? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting idea um, that, like, pluralism is not just advantageous because we get to experiment with a bunch of different lifestyles and whatever is best wins out. That's the kind of anarcho-capitalist ideal that we talked, you know, we could talk a little bit about in the first half, but that it also protects you against the risk of one idea spreading too quickly, which is a real concern that we've all learned about now that we all live in the metaverse and fake news <laughs> can spread incredibly virulently and overturn elections and such. That's another prophetic part of this book, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's no, it's, it's 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 really terrifying when you think of all the things he got right, and then you think to yourself, like, what if the rest of it is just not yet? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's sort of the the subtext of our show, I suppose. <laughs> Um, what, so should we talk about philosophy of language and, and bring us back to maybe brush us up on, mm -hmm. on where we last left our hero protagonist in terms of uh, arrival and all that? Well, yeah. So I think the, I mean, it's funny that we don't really talk about the climax of this book because it doesn't really have a climax. So we just sort of transition <laughs> Although the onward. main battle between Raven and Uncle Enzo was one of the greatest moments, yeah. I, like one of the greatest final moments in any story I've ever read. Though I, I, I just for those of you who haven't read the book and are thinking about it, um, don't don't take what Aaron just said as a the ending wasn't good. The ending was phenomenal, uh, but um, but yeah, it it doesn't 
it doesn't wrap up uh, it's all more the like yeah it go, it's like it had a good climax but then it kind of just went an extra yes, two yes. pages and it literally ends with like hey want to go home okay like yeah. that's the ending so sorry spoilers uh, and maybe that's anyway. a satire of the genre that like science yeah. fiction and cyberpunk doesn't have a lot of falling I don't know I read that I read that Neil Stevenson is just terrible, terrible at <laughs> terrible endings. endings. That's what I read. Yeah. Oh, no, well, seriously. Anybody who read Anathem or Seven Eves would argue with you vociferously about that. Uh, True. Anathem does have a wonderful ending. It's, it's, a, it's a flawless book from Star Okay, no spoilers. I haven't read it. Okay, let's Seven go back Eves to also is, a, is another one where the ending, like the, <laughs> the it, it, and that's a, a massive, massive book, and it seems impossible by the end of that to actually resolve the story and he does it masterfully so i just got to come to stevenson's how the hell did this guy write so much oh i I, i'm so i'm so jealous right like every time i read anything by him except reamd which was kind of disappointing everything else i've read by him i just spend the entire time thinking like if i spent my entire life crafting one story it wouldn't be this good right yeah exactly it's crazy anyway i feel about philip arrival (laughs) arrival faith the philosophy of language back to the show here we go yeah, so there's a couple of ideas here that we talked about some in Arrival that sort of perked your sense of, like, this is nonsense in that, too, well, and I think apply as well here, which is th- this all trades on a kind of uh, extremely uh, universalist view and also an extremely I want to correct of, the record. My this is nonsense was about being able to perceive the future but not being able to change your actions. Right, that's that's, that's called the free fair will enough. versus determinism debate, Thomas. I listened to that <laughs> whole episode just going like, determinism is the foundation of modern physics! So, sorry, yeah. so I just wanted to say that in person, too. We're, we're building him up to it. It's okay. <laughs> it's is that when we get to Anathem, we'll really nail him down I, on that. I would argue that quantum indeterminism is maybe the more of the foundation of modern physics. Go on. <laughs> so... There's a couple of important ideas here, right? Laplace's demon is in the corner just moping like a son of a bitch right now. Fine. We don't have enough time to cover everything. We already covered the fact (laughs) we don't have enough time to cover everything, so (laughs) fine. Um, Main ideas here, right, is all of us have an innate system that's biologically as well as, like, like pre-culturally hardwired towards this kind of universal language. So... In the book, they talk about it as being this, like, er language, but when we look at, like, Chomsky, for example, it's the idea that, like, all languages will involve some arrangement of noun, verb, adjective kind of stuff, right? There are going to be these basic uh, fundamental features of language that associate with fundamental things of reality, that there's these objectival things, there's uh, processual kind of events, and we would have words for those things. And so uh, the only reason this virus thing works is because... All of us have that underlying system, even though in reality it plays out with a bunch of different kinds of versions of languages that spread out from that. So and I think it's it's interesting yeah. to point out that humans have a lot of trouble accepting that in humans, but yet we don't have any trouble whatsoever accepting that in birds or insects. You know, the, like we we know that the bees don't all go to grammar school and learn the dance moves, right? We 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 agree. <laughs> we have no problem believing that that is genetically pre-programmed into them and yet when it comes to human language we 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 resist that quite a bit right hmm yeah it's interesting yeah i didn't i don't know the state of do people resist that a lot are people not into that idea well, generally they're, they're, speaking yeah 
Yeah, I mean, there's a debate about it, right? Because this is essentially saying there's something along the lines of innate ideas that exist in human minds, which can be hard to make sense of in a physicalist universe, because it seems like in the modern empirical world, the only things that would exist in your mind are the things that get poured into it. But, well, you got to have some sort of bias. You got to have some sort of start, you know, like, you yeah, can't... This, this, I'm just saying these are the, these are sort of the opposing positions in this particular theory. Right. I think the modern view is a synthetic one that says there's some amount of innate framework there that then gets played. The, the common model is a, what's called a jukebox model. It's like you only have a certain number of options, but each culture kind of picks different options based on what is more functional for it. So it's, again, that virus huh. model where it whatever is adaptive sticks around and spreads out, but it's all within the same consistent framework. And so in th and then like the, the other weird part of this, the part that's really sort of out there is the idea that because language can change the shape of the brain, that's part of this theory of innateness is that when you start to code for one language, when you start to learn one language as you're growing up, it shapes the, the physical structure of your brain that uh, you could code um, other things rapidly into a person's brain or interact with their physical brain via some sort of linguistic method. That's the really implausible part is the magic part where, like, if you say the right mix of words at someone, it will harness some underlying nature to their brain and reshape their brain physically, right? That's the extreme sort of idea, the, the sort of taking to an extreme of a philosophical idea where a lot of people are like, well, that's implausible, but of course it's implausible because it's a satire, right? It's supposed to, I think, be a satire of the idea of memes spreading around and shaping our brains and our perception of consciousness, hmm. right? It's taking it to the to 11, right? Well, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if it's just, is it a satire or is it just using, you know? Yeah, or is just the conceit of the fiction. A conceit, yeah. I, I just, think it's yeah. I think it's a satire. I mean, like just like in the first part, we talked about how it's a satire of libertarianism to some extent, even though it could go farther in that. I think this is not just an unpacking of the mimetic kind of ideas you see with Dawkins and uh, Gerard. I think is another one of the mimeticist people. It's sort of poking fun at the idea that the connection between language and biology is so tight that you could reprogram a human brain like you can reprogram a computer. Most modern right. people, most modern sciencey people are going to say that's absurd. Like yeah. whatever kind of hardwiring occurs in the neural setup as you are learning a language and growing and like learning new ideas does kind of shape that space in some sort of ways. No one really thinks that you could utter the right set of magical right, yeah. words and like change someone's neural net. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You just put them into like a command, a command line prompt or whatever. you like, get right. them into a mo. It's, it's like what it goes Westworld. You, you, you know, you, right. you give them a, a voice command and then they turn it, into... It, it's so funny because yeah. uh, Stevenson explores that very deeply in a, in a short story he wrote that, that is titled in the beginning was the command line. So mm -hmm. <laughs> that's interesting. But a slow motion version of it kind of does happen. You know, Absolutely. when we mm -hmm. when we are when we grow up, when we develop, you know, well, like yeah. a slow motion. If you hear certain words over the course of your life uh, it, in infancy and, and beyond, like it is going to drastically change how you turn out 
because of you know the, and it's e- even just ha- yeah. in, in terms of sorry not to not to interrupt but even no, in terms ahead. of like the phonemes that you're able to recognize right like so mm-hmm. uh, one of the interesting things for me about that is I, I grew up in Detroit and I went back and forth to uh, Windsor quite a bit so I you know I had a lot of uh, interaction with Canadians uh, when I was young and for the longest time I didn't understand the American joke about Canadians saying a boot because they don't, right? There's a right, phoneme right. there that um, if you grew up without any real uh, exposure to Canadian English, you just don't hear. There's a phoneme that you hear as ooh that's not, you know, that that is a different sound uh, and right. that Canadians can tell the difference, you know? It just makes me so happy to hear someone else preaching the mind-body problem. That, like, there's so much more gray area and interaction between the mental and the physical. And it's why we can't view language as this pure epiphenomenon that exists separate from the biology. But that, like, that's what I love about this book, right? It tries to tie together the technological, the biological, and the cultural. One of the perceived advantages of modern AI is that you can apply magic to it in the way you can't towards a human brain when you rewrite a computer you can do it perfectly you can totally change what's in there via this kind of magic language and it's what makes digital computers better than human brains and it's why i think you see in this text i love the passage where the character we didn't even talk about the um artificial entities in this the the robot dogs the rat things yeah yeah, the rat things things. and, and and nig the um the leader of them, the the guy who runs his own uh, car because he was blown up in Vietnam and oh, yeah. got totally artificially put into this world. And he, he has this wonderful monologue where he says, everyone views us as disadvantaged, but really we're more advantaged. We have all of the advantages of the technology that, that people might feel afraid of because we needed it out of necessity. Yeah, as if there wasn't already enough groundbreaking stuff in this book, that character, you know, who lives 24-7 in the metaverse and only interacts with the real world through TV screens he has in the metaverse, right? He has himself suspended in a liquid that that offers, like, tactile response to to the programming right. and everything. So he fully exists in the metaverse and only like, you know, logs onto a computer to go to the real world. Um, th- that sort of blurring of the lines between the virtual and the real worlds is yet another thing that really, you know, in, in terms of fiction anyway, really, I, I know there are uh, antecedents to it in science fiction, but nothing like that, that found the commercial success that snow crash had you know yeah it's super cool to imagine yeah that hypothetical of someone's in a coma or something but you're able to plug into this other world where it's like oh there you can just communicate with them again versus in the real world where you know they're not able to do that and i I did i did think that was it was a very quick character but i like that one where he he was able and he had it wired so that sensations in the metaverse would sort would somewhat transmit into the real world because mm-hmm. otherwise he's not going to really get too many sensations, you know, being, uh, being, what is he just totally like catatonic? I can't remember, but, uh, it, it seems like he's, he's completely sort of living in the virtual, which I think is right. really fascinating. Yeah. And then that he creates, he creates a situation where the dog where the rat things, which are a combination. I love the combat, the combining. It's so, oh, yeah. Cronen- it's so Cronenberg. It's pure, beautiful Cronenberg for me to like have these entities that 
because they would live miserable lives in the physical world, he puts them into a virtual world where they get to serve a function, but also feel like they are happy all the time. And we had someone yeah. asking us on the Philosophers in Space group about, like, would it be okay to put someone in a virtual world where they're happy all the time, but they're like, you know, a dog in a maze kind of situation. And I think yeah. it's, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful idea. Yeah, and so just to just to flesh this out for the people who haven't read the book, the the rat things are cyborgs that are built out of pit bull terriers that are used as defensive weapons. Um, they're they're powered by a, a nuclear isotope, um, mm-hmm. and they they travel at the sp- uh, you know they can can travel uh, beyond the speed of sound, but they don't because of noise ordinance uh, issues uh, most of the time. <laughs> um, but they you know they zip out and provide security for Mister Lee's Hong Kong affiliates. Uh, and then when they're done, they go into these cooling chambers where they it, it, they plug into a virtual world where blood-soaked frisbees are flying through the air just waiting to be <laughs> caught all the time. Stakes are growing off trees and stuff like that. And right. it's like dog paradise. And it does present this sort of, um, you know, is this cruel? Is this uh, an well, yeah, act of great altruism? He, he took, what did he take, stray dogs or dogs that were going to be put yeah. down or yeah. something exactly. like he and and he may have even taken yt's dog right isn't that what it ends yeah up being? yeah oh yeah uh-huh. yeah and so she's she i think she's disgusted like i i can't believe you would have done this and and his defense is like look they're they're living the, the best life they could possibly be living well so and it, it's very so much interesting at episode that- one or whatever the show when i put my uh, baby daughter right in a <laughs> virtual world <laughs> um, in a hypothetical to tie this back to our sort of discussion of universalism there's another theme in all of this that the dog the rat things tie into which when we get to see their inner world of experience which is something we don't always get to see in these kinds of stories you know we talked a lot with our ex machina episode about how you don't ever get to fully know what's going on inside of um ava but you do get to know what's going on inside of these dogs which i think is valuable because it ties to the other trade-off, right? This book is about trade-offs, whether it's between cultural models or religious models or whatever. Um, The trade-off we see is between knowing the other and being separate from the other but protected a little bit, right? So whether it's the people who all speak the same language but are susceptible to the virus or the people in the virtual world who are all susceptible to the same virus because they have this unified understanding of binary, right? There's this trade-off of exposing yourself, making yourself vulnerable by by making your inner world available to others versus the alternative of protecting yourself but by isolating yourself. And then the loneliness of the separate Berclaves and the separate languages and the separate belief structures and the separate visual uh, virtual world versus the physical world. Hmm. Yeah, I that's just, a good point. As an ethicist, I love things that are are meaty in their trade-offs. They're honest in saying this version gets you these benefits, but it kind of sucks in these other ways. And like this right, thing right. gets you these benefits, but yeah. Yeah, well, I think that's this interesting observation, a good one to go out on because we've got to get over to After Dark. What do you think? Yeah, I'll preview the preview and say we have a poll up for a variety of options that will cleanse our palate with regard to the male gaze that we have just been saturated with by the last two shows and activities um and i'm looking forward to all of those options because they're all amazing we've got aliens we've got terminator 2 we got her some good some really good choices here 
So, you know, be a patron and vote. Yeah. Oh, man. I I never have wanted to watch her. Are you really going to make me? I am. I am going to make you watch her. It's like 30 yeah. hours long. Times. It's really. It's not the length. It's the. I just don't want to. Don't want to do it. Oh, God. It if you watch it in the in the audio verse, it's slightly less longer. <laughs> That's the great is, thing is about audiobooks, too. You can go to 1.2 speeds. So. Yeah, exactly. Is there a version I can watch where it's good? <laughs> anyway, uh, th- yeah, and then also we've got to thank our top patron. Uh, go ahead, Aaron. Yeah, and Interrupting Thomas says what? <laughs> All right. Join our top patron at patreon.com slash zero G and hear us after dark right now. we got some good stuff to talk about. And if not, we'll see everybody else next week. That's all for the main show, but if you'd like to go to patreon.com slash zero G, you can enjoy Philosophers in Space after dark. Here's a little sneak peek for you. Well, you know, it's so funny because I I started reading the book without realizing when it was written. And it wasn't Mm -hmm. until he goes into this long description of what an avatar is that I'm like, when the hell was this written that he thought he'd need to explain? has been a burst transmission of Philosophers in Space. All music written and performed by Thomas Smith. If you've enjoyed your infotainment upload, please locate the nearest podcast interface device and fill it with five-star ratings and glowing reviews. If you think ground control should spring for fun new goodies and content, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash zero G. You can find us on Twitter at Zero G Philosophy, where Aaron will instantly and compulsively respond. Or you can email us at philosophersinspace at gmail.com. Finally, if you're sad that it takes so long for our signals to reach Earth, you can always find Thomas over at Serious Inquiries Only and Opening Arguments, and Aaron over at Embrace the Void. Until next time, live long and philosopher.